You know, the very best way to get to know someone is to spend some time with them. That's pretty clear, right? I mean, there's really no substitute for actually sitting down in sort of the same space with someone and breathing the same air and talking and seeing their reactions, hearing their tone of voice, all those things that help us get to know someone. But there's a limitation to that, right? I mean, there's, there's space, first of all, we can't be in the same room with people who live around the world, so we use things like Zoom and like that to meet with people, but there's also the great limitation of time, that there are so many people that we can study in history, but we cannot in any way actually spend time in their presence. And if you love history like I do, that can be a real frustration because there are a number of people that I would love to be able to sit down with and just spend like 30 minutes or an hour getting to know them personally, but we're limited by that. Now, the, the second best way maybe to get to know someone, if you can't spend time in their space and, and really can't get to know them personally, is to read what they wrote or what they said. And so we have all kinds of historical records that allow us to get to know people who lived before us by reading things that they wrote. And so last year at Easter time, as we led up to Easter, I, I did a series that we called 50 Days with Jesus, in which we read from the Gospel of John what Jesus did and what he said, and that helped us get to know the person of Jesus. Well, this year I want us to do something similar. I want us to do 50 days, and Easter is in 50 days. It's March 31st, so we're looking toward that even now. I want us to do 50 days with Paul. There really is no greater evangelist, nobody who shared the message of Jesus with more people, at least that we know of, in the ancient world beyond Paul. We have all these letters in the New Testament by Paul. His ministry is described in the book of Acts. So he's a major player in the early church. And I think one of the ways that we can spend some time getting to know him is to read what he wrote. So for 50 days, I want us to spend time getting to know Paul. We're going to study from his letters, and we're also going to have a weekly devotional that was mentioned in the announcements. You can sign up with that uh, and the link in the bulletin. So do that, and I'll send that out every Wednesday. Now, as we get to know Paul, it's really not just about Paul, right? I mean, there's lots of people in history that we could study, and it's interesting, and maybe we learn something about who they were, the culture they lived in, even something about ourselves. But really, I think if Paul were here today, what he would say is, don't get to know me, get to know Jesus. And that's one of the things that Paul helps us do. I mean, Paul gives us so much material about who Jesus is. So when Jesus said he was the Messiah, what did that mean? When he said he was the Son of God, what did that mean? And how do we relate to who Jesus is? And how do we live a life of serving him? Paul answers all those questions. So it's not just 50 days with Paul, but 50 days thinking about how Paul points us to Jesus. So we're going to skip around in lots of Paul's different letters. We have 13 of them in the New Testament. Some of them are written to churches that Paul had gone out on his journeys and founded. Others are written to churches that he'd never been to. Others are written to individuals he was mentoring or he had a special message for. So we're going to skip through lots of those different kinds of letters and really only land in one letter twice in this series. Now, if we think about sort of jumping into to Paul's letters... The, the question that we have to deal with is, where do we start, right? I mean, do we just start with the first one? That's Romans, and then go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and just go all the way through. Is there a better way to read Paul's letters? And in some ways, it's like, well, maybe we could start with the first one that was written and read them in order. Sometimes that's hard because we have clues as to when they were written, but no definite answers, and many of them at least. 
So what do we do? And I think the, the thing to do is just jump in. And I've chosen passages that I think are the most meaningful, the most powerful for us, that tell us the most. So I want us to jump in and what is really one of the high points in all of Paul's letters, and that's Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 8. It's certainly the high point, I believe, in the book of Romans, and Romans may be the most important of Paul's letters because he tells us so much about who Jesus is and really what it means to believe in Jesus. Now, Paul's writing this letter, Romans, of course, to Rome, the church in Rome, the center of the empire, the seat of power in the ancient world. He's writing this letter to a church he's never visited with. Okay, He gets to Rome later on in his ministry. That's all recorded at the end of the book of Acts. But at this point, he's never been there. He knows some people who are there. He knows that some people are with him who are from there. But the vast majority of that church he does not know. And yet he has a really important message for them. He's writing to a group of people that maybe fell in different camps, at least early on in life, and certainly the culture around them was like this, right? So at one point, a lot of these people believed in the pagan gods, okay? The, the whole Greco-Roman pantheon, right? Zeus and Apollo and all those gods, okay? Gods that brought everything into existence, but didn't really care that much about it, except for what they could get out of it. And certainly didn't care about human beings, except for what people could do for them. Or they believed in the emperor because that was real power in the ancient world. And they considered him among the gods. Or they didn't believe any of that. And they sort of followed the schools of philosophy based in Greece and especially in Athens. And it's all about human thinking and how important that is and what we learn from our ability to reason. We say, well, what does that have to do with us? Because there's not many people in our world who are building temples to Zeus or Apollo, right? We don't see a whole lot of that, so those pagan gods don't really matter. But, but I think the truth is that there are a lot of people in our culture who find themselves with some similar feelings. Because if you worshipped those gods, or you worshipped the emperor, or you didn't believe in any of those gods, if there's no god that cares about you, that can lead to a sense of, you know what, it, it's all up to me, right? I'm in this alone. There is nobody watching out for me. There's nobody in my corner. I have to figure everything out alone. And that leads to a sense of loneliness and then despondency. And there are a lot of people in our culture who are right there. Because they maybe don't believe in any God at all. Or they're unsure and they're not sure if God really cares about them. Or they're more concerned about either power or wisdom or knowledge. And all those things can lead to the same kind of loneliness, powerlessness, and despondency that was at work in Rome in Paul's day. So what does Paul have to say to us in this letter that might help with some of that? And I think we pick up a perfect place in Romans chapter 8. Again, really one of the high points of this letter. Now we're going to discuss what goes on in Romans chapter 8 verses 18 to 30, but we're not going to read all that because it's too much to read. What Paul's saying at the beginning of the passage is this. Creation is messed up. Okay, we know that. Human beings are messed up. We know that too. Okay, that's all clear. We've got that same message today. And he says, you know what? It's like creation is just waiting 
Like it just, it just can't wait to get to the point where God does something, where God fulfills all the promises that he's made in Jesus and ultimately will keep at the very end. And you know what? Humanity's like that too. We're waiting on God to make something of us, to make it right because there's so much that's wrong. So he says all that, and he says, remember, because we believe that God is going to act, that he's not done, the story's not finished, we as followers of Jesus are a people of hope. And then he continues with this thought. We skip down to verse 24. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So Paul says, we as Christians are a people of hope, and that means we are oriented toward the future. Because hope is always about the future, right? Hope is always about something that we can't yet see. We've imagined it. We've thought this could be. Maybe we've even planned for it, but we're not there yet. I hope I get that job. I hope I find a spouse. I hope I get in that school. I hope I can retire before I'm 80. I hope I stay healthy. All those things, right? We're looking to the future. We're not there yet, but we're anticipating it. And Paul is saying we are people who, even though we're not there yet, we are anticipating what God is going to do. We're anticipating Jesus keeping his promises. So we are a people who are future-oriented, who are hopeful. We are filled with hope. Now, hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. Paul makes a little bit of a transition and then comes back in the end. Okay, so he's talking about hope and he's saying, listen, you can't see all the things you're hoping for right now. You, you know it's coming, but you can't see it. And in the same way... God's at work right now in a way that we can't see. So, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So, Paul's saying, listen, we can't see what we are hoping for, but we're leaning into it. We can't wait to get there. And in the same way, the Spirit, even though we can't see the Spirit, is at work in us right now. Even to the point that He helps us know what to pray when we don't know what to pray. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had a problem in your life or a set of problems in your life that were so complex, so thorny, that you couldn't even imagine what the solution to the problem was. So it wasn't like you could go to God and say, okay, my mom is sick. Would you please bring her healing, okay? God, I've got this problem at work. Could you please just solve it so I can relate to this other person better? It's like we've got so much going on and it's so confusing that we can't see a path through it so we don't know what to ask God for. And in those moments, God's Spirit, in an unseen way, is at work in us, helping us know what to take to God. And maybe it's words, Maybe he gives us words to pray. Maybe it's thoughts. Maybe it's just feelings. But God is helping us through his spirit take that back to him. Okay? Then he takes it a step further in the next verse. And he who searches our hearts, literally the searcher of our hearts, that's what Paul says, knows the mind of the spirit 
because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So Paul says this, this God that we're talking about who is attached to His Spirit knows us so well. He knows everything that's going on in our hearts. So when we come to God to pray and there's this heaviness, this sense that I just don't know what to do with this. I can't solve it. There's nothing I can do to deal with it. So I'm just going to take it to God and He helps us know what to say or feel or think or whatever it is. Okay? This God. The searcher of our hearts. And when we hear that, we go... Well, on the one hand, that's really good, right? God knows me better than any other person. And so when I'm, when I'm struggling with a problem that I can't even fully express to maybe my best friend or my spouse or parents or kids, and I'd like to talk about it, but I can't really even get it all out, God knows. But maybe we're also thinking, there's some stuff in my heart that I just assume nobody know about. There's some things that are uncomfortable. And God knows that too. And part of the message is, even those things that we're not proud of, God can deal with. And in spite of those things that we're not proud of, God is still at work. And that's where Paul goes next. Romans 8.28 is probably the best known verse of this whole chapter, okay? And it's one of those verses that shows up and a lot of people can quote because it is powerful. And these are the words that we find there. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, I don't know about you, you might have a piece of art that's hanging on the wall that has the words, or at least the first, the first half of the words of that verse hanging on the wall. I've got a mug that I've had probably 30 years that has the first part of this verse on it. Because we love it because it's reassuring. It says, hey, you're not alone in this world. Hey, it's not like there's gods up there that don't really care about you, that are just acting for their own self-interest. We've got this God who is at work doing stuff for us. But what does it actually mean? It's actually a very difficult uh, passage to translate from Paul's Greek into English because sometimes in Greek, they don't do you the favor of supplying the subject of the verb. So remember back in English class and you had to diagram sentences, the first thing you got to find is the verb and then the subject of that verb. That's bringing back some good memories, I'm sure, for a lot of you, right? Okay, so in Greek, sometimes you got a verb but no subject. And it's implied, and to the writer it seemed obvious what the subject of the sentence is, but it's a little hard for us 2,000 years later to know exactly. So is it God works, or is it all things work together for good? Some of us memorized it that way. What's the subject of the sentence? Well, we don't know exactly. But what we do know that either way, it seems to me that Paul is saying God is at work. Whether he's working all things or all things are working because of God's power, this is God at work in our lives. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that God's working everything out so we don't have any problems? Well, I don't believe Paul would have ever written that because if you look at the life of Paul and what he actually says in the book of Acts, he didn't believe that. There were too many people, including Paul, in the ancient world 
who were suffering all kinds of injustice because they loved God. Okay? God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Well, there's all kinds of people who were dying because of their deep commitment to this same God. So I don't think Paul is saying, hey, God's just going to work everything out. Your problems are going to disappear. I don't think that's it at all. He's saying, whatever circumstances there are in your life, whatever stuff is going on, some of it good, some of it bad, the things that are circling you back to this prayer stuff that we, we don't understand and are thorny and complex, God is using all that stuff for good. Now, it's not just about the good of James Jones, right? It's not that God has, it's not, I would like this, but the whole universe does not revolve around me, okay? Or you. God's got more to think about than just what I need to happen this afternoon. I don't believe God ignores that. But there's a lot going on there. And some of it I don't understand. Some of it I can't see. Some of it I would never get. But God is taking all these pieces and He's at work in them for good. For, for the very best. Now remember, I told you to hang on to that thought that Paul says that all creation is waiting, is leaning into the fulfillment of all Jesus' promises. I think he's coming back to that now. And saying, listen, it, it is that God is at work today, right? But he's also working those things together for the fulfillment of all the promises that Jesus made that will be fulfilled in the end. So it's now and in the future. Then he ties all this together, describing this relationship between God and us in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the many brothers and sisters. And, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? Well, I think it's probably less and more than some people think because some people read that and think predestined. No, that means God has chosen some to be in and some to be out. And you better hope you're in the in crowd because if you're not, you're in trouble. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I, Paul over and over comes back to us being able to decide whether we follow Jesus. It's a choice that we make, okay? So it's not just something that God says, okay, you've got this and you don't have it too bad for you. It's we choose whether we're going to follow Jesus or not. But God knows. He has known us since we were born. He has known us since before we were born. He knows the choices that we're going to make. He knows those who are going to follow Jesus, and He is ready to transform them into the image of Christ. So that Christ is first, and we follow in His footsteps. So, if we tie all this together, this great passage, one of the most quoted, Romans 8.28, in all the Bible, what does it teach us? God is working in us and in you. And by that, I don't mean there's this us and then you out there. It means God is working in us as a body of Christ, and in each one of us as individuals. I say it that way because we always have to remember when Paul is writing to a church, he's writing to them as a group. He is not writing just to a collection of individuals who happen to show up and read this letter, or individuals who throughout history are reading this letter independently. He is writing to the church. 
And so he's writing to them as a group and he's saying, God is at work in you as the body of Christ doing something powerful and amazing in your community. But he's also at work in you as individuals. So he's at work in us as the church in this day, in this time, in this community, and he's at work in your life. Now, I think there's some truths that sort of flow out of this that I want to run through before we finish up today. And the first is this, God cares about us. God's at work in our lives, and, and that means he cares about us. We know God created us, and He created us to have community with us. He wants to know us, and He wants us to know Him. And that's why we're called to community together. God cares about us. He cares about you. And if you don't know that, it's ultimately and most clearly seen with Jesus on the cross. He loved us so much He made us, but when we messed it all up, He came among us and lived among us and died among us. And then He was raised from the dead. And so this all points to the fact that God loves us so deeply. He cares about, about us. Second, God works for us. Not in the sense that we tell him what to do, but that God is at work in our lives with the stuff that's good and bad, and he is forming it and reforming it and making it into something better. And he's at work not only in our individual lives again, but in us as a church. God is taking what we are, what is broken, and he is making it whole, and he is making it something good. God is at work for the good of those who love him. So God is taking all those broken pieces, and God is taking our strengths, and God is taking our abilities, and all the resources that we bring together, and he is doing something good with it. God works for us and, and is and working in us to do something good. And then finally, God gives us hope. We'll begin this series that will ultimately end on a day where we celebrate hope, right? I mean, Easter is all about hope. But I wanted to begin with hope because it really is the heart of Paul's message. The heart here in Romans, but I think if you read through Paul's letters, you see it at work in lots of different ways, that we are a people of hope. Because we are waiting on God to act, and we believe that God is acting even now. Not to make everything easy, but to make things good. Truly good. Good for humanity. Good for his creation. And so even though we can't see everything that God is going to do, we have glimpses, right, through what Jesus says, through books in the New Testament that talk about how God is going to fulfill all things. We've got glimpses of what to come is to come, but we haven't yet seen it. We will. And because of that, we are a people of hope in a world that is desperate for hope. So let's be that people of hope in our families, in the community, in our work, among our friends. And when they see that, when they see that hope, it all comes back to the fact that God cares about us and God cares about you. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful that you're a God who can take really broken things. Sometimes it's us. And you can piece them back together and make something good. And so, God, we ask that you would take the broken pieces of our lives, 
take the things that are really good about us and the people we love and do good with them and make a difference in this community. God, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.